You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Thanks, Jared. I'm good friends with uh, Chuck Geschwind, and Chuck, if you may know Chuck, is uh, he's all in, excitable guy. I love Chuck. He's been telling me for years how awesome Paragould, Arkansas is, and how awesome this body of believers is, and how awesome the leaders are, and so this is my first time here, and I would say Chuck was absolutely right on this one. He tends to exaggerate sometimes, but uh, on this case, he did not. Uh, so it's a privilege for me to be here. Thanks, Jared, for that, that intro. Very kind and uh, very honored just to be with you. And you're absolutely right. You'd have no reason to ever heard of me. And that's great. I want it to be that way. Uh, but today I want to get into James. James chapter 1, if you want to start turning there. Uh, we're going to look at uh, just a few verses here and spend a few minutes in this amazing letter. Let me just say a few things as I get started again. Being in Bama for... Uh, 18 years now, moved there in 2000, planted Summit Crossing 2003. I grew up in Mississippi, and so the reason I bring those two things out, one, being in Bama, you would think I'd be an Alabama football fan by now because they just win every year, but I'm not. I grew up in Mississippi, so I'm a Mississippi State fan, so yeah, talk to me, talk to me. This is our year. Whoever just screamed, get ready because this is going to be it. But in all reality, I have to live year in and year out in the sea of just Bama craze, right? And so uh, you can pray for me. I've become a little bitter over the years in that. Uh, I was in the YMCA locker room just this past week and I had a guy walk in, Bama hat on, and I'm like, here, here we go. And he's like, man, I'm so fired up. I'm like, what are you, so what are you fired up about? I was like, Bama football, dude. And I'm like, like this year? He goes, yeah, I can't wait to see what happens. I said, let me save you the time. You're going to win the West. You're going to rip every ounce of mystery out of college football once again. That's what's going to happen. I knew right then I'm, I've got a lot of bitterness, so you can pray for me. Maybe they'll lose one day and we can all celebrate. Um, so, so it's a, uh, again, just a, a thrill to be here. What I want to do, I, want to, I don't want to take long. I want to walk through James 1, 13 to 18. James, uh, this letter, probably the oldest letter in the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, we know in Mark chapter 3, uh, thought Jesus was out of his mind. I mean, obviously, you know, your bro is telling you your deity, he's deity. You tend to not believe that, but after you die on a cross and come back to life in three days, you would tend to believe he actually is the son of God. So James becomes one of the strongest leaders in the early church. You can read the book of Acts and learn all about James, uh, pastoring the first church there and just a phenomenal leader. And when you look at the letter of James, there's this idea that James is so practical, it's void of the gospel. But actually, when you kind of look under the hood and begin to walk through James, you see actually the gospel's all over it. So people have tried to put Paul and James at odds over the years, like Paul's all gospel, James is all works. How do those two things work together? Martin Luther, a famous theologian, actually tried to kind of push James aside, and even Luther was wrong on this. As, as we look in the book of James, we see, even though Jesus' name is rarely mentioned, his teachings are all over it. Because ultimately, James, the brother of Jesus, is just echoing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Every page that you turn, every chapter you look into, what James is doing is he's recalibrating the early church around the idea of Jesus' teaching. This 
different kingdom, this upside down kingdom. And when you look at James and think about faith and works, what James is getting at here is that faith does lead to works. So works does not produce faith, but real faith will produce works. So one pastor put it this way, faith without works simply doesn't work. So we can say all day long, well, I've got faith, but you don't look at the life and see any gospel fruit on the tree, then you have to begin to evaluate, is it real faith? And so James is going to help us evaluate. Do we have substantial faith? Are we attached to the gospel? Do we understand the kingdom of God is here and it's advancing? And are we a part of that advancement? Are we simply still advancing our own kingdoms? And James does a phenomenal job helping us think through that. And the point, the center piece of what I want to just kind of harp on today is the whole idea of temptations. We live in a culture where there's, uh, there's attractions everywhere we look. We're being marketed with sin everywhere we turn. And James is a great letter to look into to how do we defend against temptation. And James does something pretty interesting to start his letter off. James is kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. A lot of wisdom throughout this letter. And he starts his letter with trials and tests. And then he moves to the end of chapter 1 with temptations. And the Greek word in verse 2 and verse 12 are actually the same word in the Greek. But when you translate it in English, the English translation is actually given it two different words. Test and temptation because that's closer to what James was getting at. What he wanted us to see is this. That God actually does bring tests into our life. Trials, suffering, pain. Those things are from God. But temptations absolutely do not come from God. So there's two lanes here. Tests come from God. They are to refine us, to sanctify us. They're for our good. And sometimes we don't like to think of it that way. We want to live a comfortable life, a happy life. We get kind of swept into this prosperity gospel even sometimes. Like if I give enough, if I come enough, then good things are going to happen to me. That's not what James is saying. He's actually saying the opposite. Get ready. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. But you know what? It's for your good. Then James is going to flip it and he's going to say, now, wait a minute, this is for your good, but here's something that's absolutely not for your good. So where tests and trials bring value to your life, temptations bring zero value. But here's what the enemy is going to tell us. Give into the temptation, it'll bring value to your life. Give into this temptation, it actually adds excitement, enjoyment pleasure to your life. And James says, no, those things do not come from God. It's impossible. Here's what he says. Verse 13. Here's the flow, simple flow this morning. As we look at these five verses, I just want us to look at three movements. As we think about temptation, I want us to consider the source of our temptation. I think that's important that we actually understand what's the source, what's the motivators Two, then Verses 14, 15 into 16, we're going to look at the sequence of how temptation works. Because if we're going to resist it, if we're going to overcome it, I think we need to know how it works. And James lays it out brilliantly, inspired by the Spirit of God, obviously. And then finally, the source of our strength to resist that temptation is where we'll land. So hang on. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth or brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is this kingdom language in verse 18. The whole idea of this already but not yet kingdom. Jesus came initially. He inaugurated his kingdom. He will come again finalizing his completed kingdom. His heavenly glorious kingdom that as his children we will spend eternity in this glorious kingdom worshiping, serving, enjoying God forever. And as we wait for that day, What James is saying, he's putting it on display here. The goal of our lives is to enjoy God and to display his kingdom. It's it's this idea of as we go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and look at the story of God and bring it back into clear view. And what the goal of our lives really is, is to reflect his glory. And through Christ, we're actually able to reflect it once again, which is a phenomenal truth. But the reality, when we're not walking in the spirit, we're not living a gospel-centered life, what we're doing instead of reflecting his glory, we're reviling it. We're rebelling against it. And James is like, okay, let's think about this for a moment. First of all, why are we doing this? What's the source of our temptation? We have a habit or a natural desire to point the finger. And you can trace this all the way back to the garden. What did Adam and Eve do? They immediately began to point the finger and and cast blame somewhere else. And this is our natural tendency because Adam's sin has been imputed to us. We have this natural desire to say, well, he made me do it. She made me do it. My wife made me do it. My husband made me do it. My boss made me sin. Now, these make these relationships may create the occasion to sin, but they are not the cause of it. In fact, even the devil cannot make us sin. So we really don't get to even point the finger and say, well, the devil made me do it. No, he created occasion maybe. He does look to deceive us and lie to us. You can kind of see these bookends. This is, again, what's really interesting about James 1. There's these bookends to seeing the father of lies at the beginning. And we're going to walk through that, how the father of lies throws out this sequence that leads to giving into temptation versus the father of lights at the end. So we, we have to acknowledge, and James is going to talk about this in chapter 4 actually, where yes, the devil creates occasions, he's looking to deceive us, but we can't even blame the devil on giving in. We sin for one reason, one reason alone, it feels good. We sin, quite honestly, church, because we want to. It looks good. We think it's going to create good. We think it's going to create enjoyment. We think our lives are going to be better because of it. So we go all in. So the source of our temptation starts from within. And then when we give into it, it moves without. So it's not the opposite. It doesn't come from without. The occasion does. But the source of it starts within. 
Our natural propensity to just want it. We have over-desires, as Tim Keller talks about. We have an appetite for things that that God has given us for our good and for his glory, but we've over-glamorized it, we've over-desired it, and we've made a good thing a God thing. And James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. See, it's not God who's bringing us into temptation. That's actually an impossibility because there's no sin in him. So we have to get in our mind when we're dealing with temptation, this is not coming from God. So we need to evaluate where is it coming from and where is it going to lead. And James is laying down, drawing a line here, the difference between trial, temptation. It's a big time difference. God gives us trials to refine us. But he does not give us temptation. God does not test. He does not tempt, in other words. So the source begins within. And as we think through this, just a a quick example of this, how it starts within and makes its way out, is that if you're walking down the street and you just have this urge to punch a guy in the face, that didn't just emerge. Maybe they were driving in the slow lane and you pulled over in a parking lot and you just lost it and you punched the guy in the face. Ultimately, what was going on, there was something inside that was simmering. Bitterness, depression, anxiety, fear. Something started within, and our desire to have it or give into it worked itself out. So the goal here, my point here, is that we stop blaming and we start believing in the gospel. Just another example in our culture, something I'm just trying to work through and something that that you're working through and we're working through as a church, trying to live in our culture, in a culture that's quickly changing, where the Bible is being pushed aside, and if you stand on the Bible and proclaim it as truth, you're, that you could be declared a, a bigot or condemnation, or you're just, you know, you're a racist, whatever it is. It's like, you stand on truth, you lose the opportunity to speak into hurting people's lives. And so, working through, how do we do this? And there's the, the difference between acceptance of someone else's lifestyle and approval. And understanding that in the gospel, we can be completely accepting of others without approving of their lifestyle. And so I'm working through this, but here's a, here's a, just an indicator that we still aren't getting this whole idea of stop blaming, start looking inside ourselves first. I heard this comment my whole life, like one of the, you know, solutions to doing this, reaching out others that are maybe not yet believers and they're living a sinful lifestyle and whether it's an alternative lifestyle or they're living a lifestyle of addiction or whatever it is, the comments always been, well, love the sinner, but hate the sin. The better way to put this, a more accurate, more gospel-centered way to put this would be this, but we don't think of it this way. It would be this, love the sinner, hate your own sin. So what if we begin to think that way? And I believe that's what James is getting here. If we will just start here, love the sinner, hate your own sin, what would that do? How would that begin to break down our walls? How would that begin to awaken us to the gospel and the beauty of Christ's forgiveness for us? And how would that begin to transition our lives and transform us? Stop blaming. Stop looking. Start with ourselves. And we learn this from the garden. Second flow to this passage is the sequence of how temptation works. Look at verse 14. This is interesting. 
James kind of gives us how this transitions. But each person is tempted when he is lured. So there's six movements to how temptation works. Let me briefly go through this. I don't see a timer anywhere, Jared. Do I have a timer? One service, you guys are in trouble. And I actually hadn't preached in four weeks either, so I apologize for that. I've been on a preaching break. Um, but I'm going to keep it brief because I, I know my own self. I have a limited uh, brain width. So the first sequence to how temptation works is that we have to understand that it starts with attraction. James uses a, a graphic illustration here. We're lured. There's this sexual imagery here that we're seduced. So temptation, the way it works, is we see something and our heart begins to beat a little faster. Our hands begin get a little sweaty. We start thinking about how, wow, uh, just giving into that. We see it as an object to enjoy, whether it's someone of the opposite sex or a vehicle or a bigger house or some relationship or some career change. We see something and we're lured in. It's this idea of an illicit desire. When temptation passes by, we're drawn away from the things that are safe and bring us into a life of joy to a place of danger and actually a place that takes away joy. But we're lured in by the bright, delicious temptation. Bonhoeffer in his book, Temptation, describes it this way. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love for fame or power or greed or money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we all seek our joy in the creature rather than the creator. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. The only desire becomes for that creature. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust that arouses us envelops the mind and will of man to the deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of the decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, expected of me. Now here in my particular situation to appease this desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. The way temptation gets a hold of us, it begins with a simple pause. And a contemplation of how that thing, that object, that person would make our lives so much more valuable. And then it begins there and it continues with, you begin to consider it. It's the second flow here. It goes from attraction to deception. James uses the language here, but each person is tempted when he is lured. That's the attraction phase. Then he's enticed. That word enticed refers to you are now being deceived. So you've moved from just considering it, pausing, lingering, to now I call this the justification phase. You begin to justify how this really won't be that bad. You begin to justify how this really will not wreck your family in the long run. In fact, you're going to be a better husband because of this, or a better wife because of this, a better son because of this. 
You begin to tell yourself that you'll be a better employee if you just are a little happier in life. You actually will be better off for everybody else. And so it's the justification stage. What that is, is you're being deceived by the father of lies. Sexual attraction, for example, men see women as an object to be possessed rather than a brother or sister in Christ. Part of the family of God where we together call to make disciples that make disciples. We are not put on this earth to objectify one another, but to treasure and steward it. So when desires become over desires, we fall for deception. Objects of our affection become our possessions that leads to to deadly places. Again, we see this sequence show up in Genesis 3 where Eve was attracted to the beautiful fruit. The mystery behind it, the father of lies shows up, tells her this is for her good. Here's the flow in Genesis 3 in the garden, and this is the flow, this is the game plan, this is the playbook our enemy plays over and over and over. It's three simple steps to deception. One, God really won't mind. Two, is God really that good? And three, giving in is worth it. That's the, that's the playbook of our enemy. That's the playbook from Genesis 3. It works so well there. When, why would he change it? God really doesn't mind. God really isn't that good. And giving in is going to be so worth it. You need to know every time you stop and you're attracted to something or to someone. And the deception phase since in, you need to know the playbook. You need to know that I guarantee that that sequence of lies we've all wrestled with, we've all considered, well, maybe God's really not that good. Maybe he really won't mind. I mean, he is a gracious God. Jesus died on the cross for my sins anyway. So we use the gospel as a springboard to sin rather than as a springboard to worship God and enjoy him more fully. And our enemy's just laughing. The third sequence is obsession. We move from attraction to deception to obsession. James says we're lured and we're enticed by our own desire. There that word desire is, the appetite. We move to the phase now where we're completely obsessed. We can't quit thinking about it. We stopped resisting it. We are now giving into it. This object begins to take over our thinking, our reasoning. It distracts us. We're in a presence of someone else, but we're not listening to them. We're thinking about this object. We're not thinking about pleasing God. We're thinking about pleasing ourselves. We're in the grip of lust. And at that point, church, God is never more distant. Not because he's left, because we've, we've exited his, his plan. We've walked away. We've rebelled. We've, we've walked down this path of temptation and falling into obsession. Where once God was so real to us and so rich and we'd open up his word and it just... Man, it just soaked, it went deep, it changed us. Now we open up the word and we just get nothing out of it. We're dry and we wonder, what I've got to do? God's word's so complicated and what's happening probably down deep is somewhere in that sequence of temptation, attraction to deception, you moved in some place of obsession. We need to understand what's going on here. James 
could not be more explicit. The source of our temptation is not from God. It's from our own heart. And the enemy knows this. So we move from obsession, the fourth movement, the third movement to the fourth movement now, which is conception. So obsession gives way now to conception. This is how James puts it. He says, we're lured, we're enticed, our own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth. So once we give into this stage, now what we need to understand is we're giving it life. We're giving it birth. We're allowing it to breathe. It's it's this idea why it's so important that when sins emerge in our life, we don't let them linger and take root. We actually kill. We actually suffocate. We cannot give it life because it gives birth to something that's not healthy for us. It's what the, the old Puritans called mortifying the sins of the flesh. We're called to kill it, to suffocate it, not give it life. I was watching... Uh, just recently on Netflix, Karate Kid, the original, because there's really only one Karate Kid movie to watch, okay? Uh, just, as a kid of the 80s, let me just go ahead and save you some time. If you've never watched a Karate Kid movie, please do not watch the remake. Go all the way back to the 80s version. And the sequels are average at best, but the original top five movie of all time. You can argue that with me later, right? Daniel's son, he's coming into his own. He's like had a hard time with moving into a new city. And there's this, uh, this karate, uh, karate dojo, these group of guys that are bullying him. And Daniel's son, if you know the story, makes a great contact connection with Miyagi, his soon to be instructor and this just guru. And Miyagi decides to take Daniel's son to this dojo where the, this karate was going on and these guys were learning and they walk in. I just happened to watch the scene. It's the one scene I turn on and it was this scene going on. And it's the, it's probably my favorite scene in the movie. Daniel's son and Miyagi walk into the dojo and they're practicing their karate and, and, and Johnny, like the ultimate villain in the movie is like leading them. If you know this part. And he's leading them in their, you know, their karate calisthenics, whatever they're doing. And then he stands up and Johnny makes eyes with Daniel's son. And it's like the ultimate enemies, right? And at this point, the karate instructor says, Johnny, lead us in the mantra, the Cobra Kai mantra. And so if you remember the mantra, I'm, I, I didn't re- really remember it until I'd gone back and watched it. The mantra was this, strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. So the whole movie, that was kind of their mantra. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. And I'm watching this and I actually was thinking about this text and I actually had this thought. That actually is a good mantra for Christian living. It really is. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. When it comes to sin, that's how we're to operate. We're to Cobra Kai the heck out of our sins. Cobra Kai, that bad boy. When it comes in, strike first, strike hard. No mercy, sir. But we got to keep going because if we just stop there, my concern is we will leave here with this, again, this mentality of, okay, so here's what you're saying, Paul. I got to kill my sin. I got to try hard. I got to dig in. I got to beat my fist into the ground. I got to figure this out. I got to unplug, walk away. Some of those things may be part of your journey, but that ultimately is not the source of our strength. So hang in there. But that is part of faith without works does not work. So you can't just say, well, grace, grace will get me through this temptation. 
Grace is the power source, but you better plug into it. Obsession leads to conception, and then conception leads to addiction. James now says, after it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown. Here's the imagery now. It's like a full-grown man. It is reigning over you. That's where it's going. That's where, when you trace it all the way back to attraction, just so you know, that's where it's taking you. Attraction to deception to obsession. Once you give it life and give it breath and you haven't killed, you haven't struck first, hard, and no mercy, you give it life. And once you've given it life, it masters you. So our enemy tells us it's going to bring you into freedom. Reality tells us, the Bible tells us, the gospel reminds us, it actually brings you into the opposite place of captivity. And so our enemy tells us, do this. Genesis 4, right after this fall in the garden, this Cain and Abel story comes into play. And what we see in Genesis 4 is this statement. Sin is crouching at your door. And its aim is to master you. So that thing that maybe you're wrestling with right now. That idea, that notion that this desire may not be that bad. That you can play with fire a little longer. That you're actually that one guy and that one girl that can play with fire a little longer than anybody else and get away with it. Because the enemy, he will tell us those things. And we are gullible enough at times to believe that. That our sin will not be found out. That we are just clever enough to get beyond it. And so we think we can go down this path of attraction to deception to obsession to conception. And not land into this place of addiction. We are wrong. The aim of temptation, the aim of sin is to master you. To control you so that you no longer are controlled by the Spirit of God. Where your life is enjoying His presence and enjoying Him fully and reflecting His glory. Now He's mastering you. The, the sin's mastering you. So instead of reflecting the glory of God, you're reviling it. You know you're being mastered when these things are taking place. This is just a quick diagnostic for you to consider. Three statements. You may be mastered by a sin. Temptation has moved all the way from attraction to addiction. And you need to own it this morning when there is now a pattern of giving into that temptation. There is a rhythm in your life that requires a return visit over and over and over to whatever over desire it is. And whether you're returning every one to three days or every seven to ten days or once a month, if you're returning, it doesn't really matter the time lapse between the return. But if you're returning, you need to own. You've moved from attraction to addiction. Two, there's a lack of personal holiness in your life. You were so mastered by a worldly desire that your desires for the things of God have disappeared. Things of... That once inspired you and compelled you. The word, prayer, missional community life. And not just checking a box. But you were all in. You showed up and you engaged. And you confessed. And you were transparent with your brothers and sisters of Christ. And when sins were shared and confessed. You actually engaged and listened and prayed for them. And pointed them back to the gospel. Instead of just giving them therapy. You got them to the gospel. Because you believed in it yourself. You couldn't wait to give it away. So there's a lack of personal holiness now in your life. 
You better trace it back to this sequence and how temptation's working in you. Three, there's a lack of passion for Christ and his mission. There's just a, there's a lack of passion, and quite honestly, it's just gone void. When your leaders and pastors stand up and preach vision and talk about reaching our neighborhoods and reaching the nations, it just bounces off. And maybe thoughts of, well, I'm glad we're doing that. Maybe kind of the final phase for you just completely collapsed. Or maybe you still a desire to see it happen, but you just, you just relegated to the notion that, well, it, hopefully they're doing it. But the idea that you are a missionary is kind of void in your heart now. So if there's like an absence of mission in your life, if you're not seeking to advance the kingdom where you live, where you work, where you play, where you travel, then you need to trace back what happened because ultimately this is the call of our lives. When Jesus said, come and follow me, he said, drop everything. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require losing it all so we may gain everything. We need to consider the final step here. The final movement in the temptation leads to obliteration. He, be, he ends here in verse 15 with after it's become fully grown, it's mastered you. It's mastered you. What does it bring forth? Death. That's the end game. That's the end game. To take you from, wow, that looks good. That's going to bring value. That's going to be worth it. That's going to be worth risking my family. It's going to be worth risking my kids. It's going to be worth risking my career. It's going to be worth risking the mission. Somebody else will do it. The enemy's got you on this path to lead you to this point. Not life, but death. John 10.10 tells us this. the, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy But the Son of God comes to give us life and give it to us the fullest, the abundant life. So I don't know where you are on this sequence, this movement of attraction, obsession, deception, just tracing that back all the way. Maybe your life has been completely blown up. And as I'm talking about this final phase, I have... Through my ministry and being a part of this church plan over the last 14 years, I've had close friends blow up their lives. I've had pastor friends blow up their lives because this sequence was enacted and they didn't stop to think about where it was taking them. And they blew up their lives. And it's heartbreaking. So I don't know where you are in that sequence. Maybe you're... Maybe you're You're in tune with what God's doing, and when attraction comes in, you've got a good rhythm of repentance and belief, and that's awesome. Maybe you haven't considered just how dangerous attraction is, and you've pondered it, and you're contemplating. You've actually moved into the deception phase, and maybe today you're actually having thoughts of, maybe it's worth it. Maybe you're already to the obsession stage, and maybe you've you've made it all the way to the obliteration phase, and you are currently, you know Without a shadow of a doubt, you've blown your life up. And you wish you could go back. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because regardless if you're at the attraction phase or the obliteration phase, there's no place that you can run or blow your life up. You cannot obliterate your life up enough to where Christ cannot restore you. And the reason we know this 
is because Christ was obliterated for our sins. He walked this final stage willingly for us, church, because he knew we would blow our lives up. So he was blown up, torn to pieces, bloody mess, laid in a tomb, left for dead. But the good news of the gospel, he came back to life to give you life. So I just, want, I just want this to just sink deep into your hearts today because I know in a room like this, all of us find ourselves somewhere in this sequence. Let's be honest. Let's stop pointing the blame. Let's stop making excuses. But let's run to the gospel, to the source of our strength. Verse 17 and 18 says this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, we can listen to, here's the source of our temptation, it's us. And as we consider this, we can listen to the father of lies and act upon this desire that's going to lead to death. Or at the end, what James gives us, here's the option. We can listen to the father of lights who brings us into life. So we're either walking in the shadows, we're walking in darkness and listening to the father of lies. Or we're walking in the light, bringing our sin to bear, confessing it, knowing we have nothing to prove anymore. Jesus has already proved it all. He gave his life up so that we may have life. So let's stop pretending and acting like we've got it together. We go into our communities and we lay it out and say, you know what? I need to confess because the gospel is powerful enough. It's real enough. It's beautiful enough. It restores us. It heals us. It has the power. So we believe in the source of strength. We stop lip service and we stop believing in it and acting on it. Faith without works is just doesn't work. But faith with works, working it out, working out our salvation, opening up, being transparent, believing in the father of lights. This is where we enjoy the good gifts that come from God above. So those things that you want, just let this sink deep into your heart. They do not compare at all to the good gifts that come from God. So when you have that moment of like, man, I, maybe I need that. I want to try that. Just stop. Remember James 1, 13 and 18. Wait a minute. This isn't coming from God above because he can't bring temptation in. He doesn't. He has no sin in him. So this isn't coming from God. It must be coming from the father of lies. And the father of lies, his gifts lead to death. But the father of lights, his gift brings life. Here's the comparison. Here's what the gospel compels us to. Our God gives us these good gifts. The best gift of all is Jesus, his son. It's the greatest gift that we could ever receive. So as we consider Jesus Christ the greatest gift ever, here's the difference. The compare and and contrast of the two. We have an enemy that's the prince of darkness, but we have a savior that's the bright morning star. We have an enemy that's shifting sand, but we have a savior that's the rock of our salvation. He's steady. 
He's solid. He holds us up. Whatever you walk through, whenever your life crumbles, when relationships fall apart, when career ends, when finances go away, when we lose our house, we lose whatever, Jesus does not shift. He's steady. He's solid. He holds us up. The enemy, when our life falls apart, he exits. He's gone. Our enemy is a thief that steals our joy. Our Savior is the one that brings lasting joy. Our enemy brings death. Our Savior conquered death. Every time I'm going to make a final statement, that train's going to blow. I'm going to let it it finish because we're not going to miss these last three statements. It's almost like the enemy just didn't want us to hear this. I love it. I love it. Our enemy led us out of the garden, but our Savior brings us back in. Who are we listening to, church? And who are you believing? The Father of lies or the Father of lights. If you truly believe Christ is better, your ability to resist temptation gains real power. The power to say no is bolstered by your love for something far greater than your desire that you're staring at. An affection for Christ is the way we strike first. We strike hard. And we give it no mercy. Because we know down deep, our love for Jesus, our life in Jesus is so far greater than the life our ten enemies trying to tell us to live. So we stomp it out. We suffocate it. And we reflect the glory of God as we go through our neighborhoods and to the nations. And we enjoy his good pleasure. And we're filled with contentment and joy. And God gets the glory for it. Let's pray. As we come to a time of communion... We read in the scriptures where the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he took the cup. And he had this special time, this special meal with his disciples. He initiated this time with them so they would never forget the sacrifice that Christ would walk through so that we could have real life. So this means of grace, this special time that we take these elements, it's nourishment for our souls because we're reminded of the gospel. That through Christ's broken body, we no longer have to live a broken life. And through his shed blood, we now have atonement, redemption to God the Father, the Father of lights. So as you prepare for your time of communion where you could come up front, where there's two tables, or go in the back where there's two tables, I want you just to reflect on this truth this morning. Who are you believing? Who are you listening to? Consider maybe where you are on this sequence of how temptation works. And maybe spend a moment, reflect, repent, and believe. And as you come to the table, you don't come to the table because you cleaned yourself up. You come to the table because you've acknowledged your need for Jesus. So come enjoy and taste that the Lord is good. And as you come, as believers, enjoy Christ.
and his work for you. And if you are still seeking the Lord, maybe this morning this whole text has just kind of thrown you off because honestly you haven't crossed the line of faith yet. You're just checking this thing out and that's cool. We want you to reflect on where you are. I would just challenge you to maybe ask the question, who are you listening to? And maybe for you, you need to listen to the Spirit of God who's wooing you and drawing you in. And so instead of coming to the table, this is a time for believers. This is a time for you just to reflect and maybe through the power of God receive salvation this morning. So I would plead with you, right where you are, receive Christ. And before you leave, my prayer for you is that the Spirit would give you the courage to share with one of the leaders here that Christ has saved you, God has called you. And you're ready to live for him. I encourage you to do that this morning. Come when you're ready. Let's continue to worship Christ today.